afterwards. I have great plans this afternoon. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And it sounds so good right now. Just relax. We are right now in the middle of the series based on a sermon that Jesus preached. And when I say middle, closer to the beginning than the actual middle. Because the last sermon in this whole series is scheduled for like the second Sunday in November. It's going to be a little while here. But that's because these words are so important. Jesus preached this sermon, short sermon. When he was all done, this is what he said about it. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. In other words, while all the words of of Jesus are important, while all scripture is important, Jesus said when he finished this short sermon... You know, what I just told you is so life-changing. If you will learn it and do it, you'll be rock solid. Now, that doesn't mean you don't study the rest of the Word of God. You don't study the rest of the words of Jesus. You don't study the rest of Scripture. But there's something contained in this sermon that is so foundational, so powerful, that when Jesus is done, he says, look, I just gave you everything you need to be rock solid. Man, those are important words. But this is what, that's why we're calling this seven and a half minutes to a rock solid life because you can read the Sermon on the Mount in seven and a half minutes pretty easily. But we also do this every week so far. We may skip a week from time to time just so I don't want it to get too monotonous, but I need you to remember this right here. I can read the Sermon on the Mount in seven and a half minutes But to be rock solid, I have to put it into practice every day. Jesus is not interested in what you know. You can take a test on theology and pass it with flying colors and never see the inside of the kingdom of God. It's what you do. Do you take these truths and live them out? That's what he's looking for. Last week, he was talking about good news. Of course, he started the whole thing with the Beatitudes, and there really is a great flow to this sermon. We'll talk about it at some point so that you can see everything that he's talking about and why and why it's put in just its right section. These aren't just a collection of abstract thoughts. There's a flow and there's a point to it all. He's gone through the Beatitudes. He's told him you have to be different because if you're just like everybody else, then what good are you? And he told him to expect persecution. Then last week, he gave him some, some bad news, good news. The bad news was that the law wasn't going to. Remember that? The fact is that the people would love to be released from the law because the law, as they understood it, was so oppressive. It was an oppressive system that you had to obey all these laws, and if you didn't, you were guilty before God. And Jesus looked at them and said, guess what? The law isn't going anywhere. And you could almost hear them go, oh, you've got to be kidding me. We were hoping that you'd release us from all of this. The way the Pharisees understood the law was so oppressive But then he also gave them good news. The good news, of course, is that we're not righteous before God because we follow the law. We talked about how to become righteous last week. And if you didn't get that sermon, you can can check it out at the library or go online. 
www.salemfirst.com. Go down to podcasts. All of these sermons in order are right there. You can download them to your device, your computer, or just listen to them right then. But he ended that whole section last week with this statement. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And when they heard that, they probably went, oh my word, then who can be saved? Because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were the most righteous people that they knew. And if they're not good enough to get in, who's going to make it? Well, we talked about that last week, how you make it. It has nothing to do with obeying the rules. And in August, we're going to find out what he meant when he talked about fulfilling the law. That's still coming. He's going to get to that, but it'll take us to about August before we get there in the sermon. Today, this is what you need to understand. Here it is. A Pharisee would say that righteousness is evident in being religious and obeying the rules. That was true for the Pharisees in the Old Testament. It is true for the Pharisees in the New Testament. It is true for the Pharisees in Christianity today. And in my career, I have known many New Testament Pharisees who still felt that their righteousness was evident in being religious, going to church, giving the money, and obeying the rules. Jesus is about to show us something very different. Jesus tells us that true righteousness is evident not in our piety, but in our relationships. You understand the word piety? Can you, anybody give me a, a definition of piety? I'll give you another word that's similar, religiosity. Does that help you? Probably not. What is piety and religiosity? Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, yeah, it can be, sure. Although even righteous people can be pious. What is piety? Looking good, okay, sure. You may even be good and looking good. So piety isn't necessarily... Carson, what, what is piety? It can be that, exactly. And when it gets to that point, we're, we're way off. But all of us should be pious. Piety is um, it's the religious things that we do. It's, it's our prayer life. It's, 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 it's giving. It is going to church. Being pious isn't necessarily bad unless you are trusting in your piety to save you. Then it's bad. This last week, I listened to a sermon, and that shouldn't surprise you. I listen to between four and six sermons every week. Uh, great preachers that I like to listen to and speak into my own life. And this guy was talking about um, money and values, really. He said, if you really want to follow someone's, if you want to know what's really important to them, you follow the money, okay? Someone who says, my family's important to me, but they spend all their money some other place. The family isn't important. People that would say, my church and, and the kingdom of God is important to me, but they don't invest any money there. They invest their money in other places. That's a whole different sermon. But as I was listening to that, I thought, you know, that's interesting. Because I think Jesus would say this. If you want to know someone's commitment to righteousness, someone's commitment to right living, look at their relationships. Follow their relationships. And that will tell you how committed they are 
to righteousness and right living. Our rightness with God and therefore our right living is seen not in our commitment to church or our prayer life or how much theology we know. All that is piety. All that is religiosity. It's not necessarily bad. Just don't build your house on it. Our commitment to rightness with God and therefore right living is found in how we treat the people around us. Doing some research, I came across this quote. You know, some of you may have heard from modern day oh, evangelists or TV personalities or radio personalities that you need to stay away from the term social gospel and maybe run from that. Be real careful there, okay? I want to show you this right here. This is a quote. Solitary religion is not to be found there, meaning the church. Holy solitaries is a phrase no more consistent with the gospel than holy adulterers. The gospel of Christ knows no religion but social. No holiness but social holiness. Now, which left-wing, radical, socialist do-gooder wrote that. John Wesley, right there. Show you the next slide. This is taken directly from John Wesley's works. The works of John Wesley, volume 14, page 321. Now, the reason that's important to us is because John Wesley started the Methodist movement, the Methodist church. He would be sort of our uh, modern day founder, if you will. It was his theology and, and his belief system that shapes who we are. And he said, you know what? Holiness is only seen in social holiness. Now, what did he mean by that? How we interact with each other. How you are when you're off by yourself. It's not holiness. How we react and interact with each other. Social holiness. That's holiness. Now, see, it's a little different than, than how I was raised. Even though I was raised in a church that, that looked up to John Wesley, it was still personal purity. It was all about being personally pure and obeying the rules. Was I, that's, what, that's how we define the word holiness. If you were holy, it was because you were personally pure and you obeyed the rules. And John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, said, no, it's not. Tell me how you are at home. And I don't mean by yourself. How are you with your family? How did you act and react to that stranger this last week? How do you live in fellowship in the church? That'll tell me if you're holy. Not what you do when you're on your own. Wow. It's found in our relationships, not in our piety. The Pharisees' idea of righteousness was obeying the law. I'm personally pure, I obey the law, I'm righteous. In the next few sections, Jesus, of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to show people that right living, that righteousness goes far beyond the law. And he starts right here, okay? He still wants us to have acts of righteousness. But remember, these acts of righteousness do not save us. They don't put us right with God. We don't do acts of righteousness to be right with God because you can't do that. 
But when you are right with God through Jesus Christ, then there better be acts of righteousness. Our acts of righteousness are because we're right with God, not to get us right with God. Do you understand that difference? Shake your little heads up and down. Let me know you're there, okay? Otherwise, we have to spend the next 20 minutes on that point. It's that important. Your acts of righteousness will not make you right with God. You do them because you are right with God. There's been a change. And you want to do right living because it's right to do it, not because you'll get brownie points, okay? Good, there we are. He's going to start with this particular act. It's called the act or the righteous act of anger management. This is what he says. You have heard it. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Let's stop right there. The Pharisee would look at that and go, yes. Who did I murder yesterday? Nobody. Who did I murder this week? Nobody. I am so righteous. I mean, it's even more righteous today. There are six billion people in this world. I could have murdered any one of them yesterday. I didn't murder six billion times yesterday. I am so holy, make you sick. But see, that's how the Pharisees would look at it. I obeyed the law, I'm fine. But I tell you, mm -mm. hold on. Anytime Jesus says that, hold on. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Okay. If I murder somebody, I'm subject to judgment. But if I'm angry, I'm subject to judgment. Now, don't panic at that. We're going to get there. He's not saying that you're wrong. It just means our anger will be judged. Our anger, God is going to look at it. One day he's going to sit down and say, okay, let's talk about it. And he's going to say, now, let's, let's talk about the anger that you showed in your life. Let's talk about this time right here and this time right here and that. Some of it may be very justified, but we'll talk about it. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Racha, which is um, knucklehead, you know, kind of a, an insult, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. It means you broke the law. And then he says this. But anyone who says, you fool, Anyone who denigrates that person who says, you are so stupid, you are, you are so much lower, you are less than a human being, I take who you are and I bring you down here because you are a stupid idiot. will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. And then he says... Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. And I tell you the truth, you will not get out of here until you've paid the last penny. Let me just summarize for you some of them that have that, that shorter attention span. Here it is, right here. Jesus said, look, if your anger hurts somebody else, you better settle it now. Right now, because this is all you got. Imagine yourself on the way to see the judge. And if you don't settle it now in this life, one day you will be handed over and you will have to answer for that uncontrolled anger there and you don't want to do that. Take care of it now. See, the first thing we have to remember is this. You ready? Words matter. 
Words matter. The very bottom of that notes, the first page, there's a little line there for you to write that in. Words matter. Do you remember this rhyme? Sticks and stones may break my bones. But what? It's a lie. It's not true. I remember hearing it when we were still living in El Monte, which means it was the late 1950s. I was less than six years old. Probably because somebody made fun of me and I went to my parents and my parents taught me the rhyme. Doug, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words can never harm you. Now, what they're trying to do, of course, as we teach this to our kids is don't get your feelings hurt over what people say, but you know what we really wind up saying to them? It doesn't matter what you say. Your words won't matter. Your words don't hurt anybody. And it's not true. Words hurt. And once they are written, and once they are said, Raka, you fool, you idiot, cannot be taken back no matter how hard, and we all try that, don't we? How many of us have said in our lives, oh, I'm sorry, I take that back. Let me see your hands. Let me see the, the liars who won't put their hands up. Okay, right. All of us have said, I take it back. And you know what? You can't. It can't be done. I cannot go into somebody's mind and take those words out. They're there, and they will always be there. I can be forgiven the words, but I cannot take them they're permanent. Why is it, by the way, that Jesus, when he's talking about acts of righteousness, because he's going to talk about several acts of righteousness, then he's going to go to a whole other section talking about when we do those acts of righteousness. It's all one section about acts of righteousness. Now that you're right with God, what is right living all about? He's going to summarize it, get to that in August, but right now it's kind of point by point. The first one is anger management. Why do you think he started here? I think there was a reason he started here. He moves on to adultery and a few other things, but he starts here. Why? Come on, you get to answer now. Why would Jesus start here and say not with adultery, which he's going to get to next week? Because it's something we all do. We all get angry. We've all said stupid things, hurtful things. And he starts with where we all really live. Now I'm going to make a statement to you. I can't prove it. It's just my own personal opinion. But I think I could make a case for it. Words spoken in anger. Words spoken in uncontrolled anger. Have done more personal damage than all the weapons and the wars in human history. children crushed their spirits murdered by parents who lose control and say horrible rotten things day after day after day marriage is ripped apart promises broken relationships Ruined, murdered, because husband and wife lose control 
and say horrible, rotten things to each other. Entire nations torn apart at each other's throats, murdered because in anger, politicians, community leaders, voters, citizens, rip each other apart. And we all do it. That's why he starts here. He starts, okay, let's, let's just talk about the thing that all of us are guilty of and we just need to change. Uncontrolled and unrighteous anger. Now, you ready to see what Jesus had to say about this? There's good news, don't worry. You don't have to hang your head here. He knows who we are, but he also gives us hope always. He confronts us with reality and he gives us hope. Let's start here. Ready? There are three questions in your anger. Now, some of you may have an anger problem. Some of you may have been told that you have an anger problem, you have anger issues. Some of you maybe don't have an anger issue, but you still have anger and you need to deal with it properly. Even if you don't have an anger management problem, we all have anger and it must be managed correctly. It must be dealt with correctly. So we're going to start by asking these three questions. Question number one, why are you angry? Why are you angry? And you say to me, I am feeling righteous anger, godly, and you know what? You might be. You might. There is such a thing as godly, righteous anger. Did you think that Jesus was just this passive, milquetoast kind of guy? Or that God himself doesn't have or feel wrath? My word. We could go for the next hours just looking at passages about God's wrath and anger and Jesus' anger as well. There is such a thing as righteous anger. So let's find out if what you're feeling is righteous anger, okay? First of all, take a look at this. The Lord, righteous anger, okay, he can't do anything that isn't righteous. So his anger must be righteous. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children of the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generations. Whole different sermon right there. Interesting idea, but the point is this. There is such a thing as righteous anger. God feels it. But he's also very loving, forgiving. But there is an end to his patience as well, isn't there? And there's consequences. Are you feeling righteous anger? Well, let's find out. Ready? Righteous anger is rare. And it's never about me. That passage said that God is slow to anger. Are you slow to anger? If not, it ain't righteous. God is slow to get angry. Now, when he does get angry, batten down a hatches, ace. Because there's consequences. But he's slow. Is your anger quick? See, a lot of us have inside of us like a little pilot light. We just got a gas stove at my home. I've always wanted, I like cooking with gas stoves. And, and while these don't necessarily have little pilot lights anymore because they've got electronic ignition, the old ones have little pilot lights. Water heater has a little pilot light. little pilot light burns all the time. And when suddenly fuel is added to it, it goes whoosh, right? Should, that's what the water is supposed to do. 
All of us have that little pilot light going right now. Right here. It's always burning. Someone adds a little fuel. Boom! God does not have a pilot light. Righteous anger does not have a pilot light. If you're quick to anger, it isn't righteous. And it's never about me. Now you say, but, but what, if you're, what if I'm wounded? What if somebody does something wrong to me? Okay, what has Jesus already said? Just recently, by the way, in the Sermon on the Mount, if you are mistreated, if you are persecuted, if something happens to you that is unfair, what should be your response? Anger? What did he say? I believe he said something like, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad in that day. And you think, what? He didn't say, get mad about it. He said, are you mistreated? Persecuted? Good. You're probably doing it right then. Righteous anger isn't about me. You know, there are really two main reasons why we get angry. Want a little psychology lesson. Here we go. There are two main reasons that we tend to get angry. And what are those reasons? Fear and hurt. Okay? When we are afraid or when we're hurt, that's when we tend to get angry. Let me give you an example of, uh, and you've done this or it's been done to you. You ever walk up behind somebody, sneak up and go, ah! Did they turn around and go, hey, that was really funny, thank you. No, they turn around, you do that again, I'm going to knock your teeth right down. They got angry. Why did they get angry? They were afraid. I'm going to tell you one of my big failures here. When Linda and I were, were dating, uh, and, and our homes were very close to each other, just a walk's distance away, high school sweethearts, so we probably junior, maybe senior year. I remember one time walking home with Linda. We were at my house, and... We had the big swimming pools. You had a nice big swimming pool. And we just kind of go back and forth. And my little sister, who was six at the time, was riding next to us on her bike. And she decided to turn around and go back home. But she didn't look behind her. I remember it so well, walking with Linda. Lisa, my sister, right here. She turned around right into the path of a car. And all I remember was the screech of brakes and her cry. She wasn't hit. Thank the Lord this person had great reflexes and got around her. And my sister, I remember her, six years old, coming up to the, to the curb and she's shaking like this. And me, the loving big brother, grabbed her in my arms and I held her and I said, Sweetheart, are you okay? And if you believe that, I've got a bridge to sell you. yell at her why did I yell at my sister who was almost killed and was terrified why I was terrified I was so scared I was wrong but that's why I did it teenagers have you ever heard your parents get really mad at you 
Have you heard them yell? It could be that one of the reasons they did that is they're so frightened you're going to do something so foolish that will hurt the rest of your life. And maybe they shouldn't yell. But that's why they do it. You get afraid. Or you get hurt. You get embarrassed. You get humiliated. Again, another failure of mine. Even go back a little further. We're talking now 1966, guys. It's been a while. I was in seventh grade. Um, Girls frightened me. Uh, They were a mystery to me. I'm not saying I haven't figured it all out now, but they were really a mystery back then. And there was this one girl that I wanted to impress. This was long before Linda. I'm in middle school. I'm in seventh grade. And... um, you know, it was that girl that I can you always look at from afar. I would never talk to her. If I talked to her, I'd, you know, I'd melt into a puddle. And if she talked to me, I'd run and cry. And I don't know what I would have done. But she was the one, see. And it happened to be a day, and we were at P.E., and it had been raining a lot. That, and so we didn't go out to, to play P.E. What the coach said was, look, just go out in a, you know, free time kind of stuff. And so a friend of mine went out there, and we were playing catch back and forth, throwing the ball back and forth. And um, I looked over, and here was this girl, you know. I really wanted to impress, and so I started to be really cool, you know, throwing the ball back and forth, so that she would, you know, at any moment walk up to me and say, you are the coolest baseball thrower I've ever seen, will you marry me, that kind of thing, but, um, and the ball got past me, I remember, it just got past me, kind of over where she was, pretty close, and I thought, this is my chance to show her how cool I can run, so I took off running, but as I told you, it had been raining a lot. And as I came close to the ball and tried to stop, both feet came right out from underneath me. I landed flat on my back in the mud and I slid right up to where she was standing. <laughs> and that's exactly what she did. You got it. She started laughing at me. And my friends started laughing to me. And all the birds of creation were laughing at me. The baseball formed a little mouth and it was laughing at me too. So here I am, humiliated in front of the girl I wanted. So how did I handle it? Did I look up and go, oh, I'm really clumsy, I'm very sorry. You know, I looked at her and I said, why don't you watch where you're going? <laughs> now, why was I mad? I was hurt. Yeah. That's it. Here it is. Those are the two reasons that we get angry most of the time. Most of the time our anger is what's called secondary emotion. First we feel something, then we get angry. Maybe the next time someone's angry with you, really angry, ask yourself, why? What are they afraid of? Why are they hurt? The next time you find yourself getting really angry, Ask yourself why. What am I afraid of? Why am I hurt? People who are hurt a lot, people who read things into other situations, they they feel themselves slighted all the time, when in fact most people really aren't treating them any differently. It just feels that they are. They get hurt all the time. They tend to be angry all the time. People who are afraid of losing control, we call them those, those control freaks, 
and they just have to control everything around it. You know why? They're terrified of losing control, fearful of what will happen in their life if they're not controlling it, and so they get mad. Next question. First was, why are you angry? Second one is this, are you in control of your anger or does it control you? Nowhere in the Bible does it tell us that being angry is wrong. Even if you're angry because you're hurt, even if you're angry because you're afraid, it's not wrong. Those are actually very human reactions. They are. It's okay. The question is, what do you do with your anger? Do you use those hurtful words? Do you condemn a brother or sister? Do you break a relationship? What do you do with your anger? This is what Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. It's okay to be angry. Even if you're angry because you're hurt or you're angry because you're afraid. Your anger's not wrong. What do you do with it, though? If you lose your temper, yeah, now you blew it. Jesus was angry, but he never lost his temper. Never. He never said anything that he didn't. He never, Jesus never once had to go up to a Pharisee and go, you know, I'm really sorry, I take that back. I didn't mean to call you a whitewashed sepulcher. Jesus got in the face of the Pharisees and he called them whitewashed sepulchers. You're like a, you're like a, a prettied up tomb. You look good on the outside and the inside, you're yucky. He called them phonies, hypocrites, actors. And Jesus was not smiling when he cleared the temple. There was a time he was so angry that people were making money off religion because that's what the cleansing of the temple was all about. Making a huge profit on religion that he intentionally made a whip and went through the temple knocking over the tables and chasing people out. He was But he was also in complete control. Everything he did, he intended to do. Everything he said, he intended to say. What do you do with your anger? You see, righteous anger does not cause or even wish damage to another person. If you're going to have that righteous anger, it, you don't really want to hurt someone else. If you do want to hurt them, it isn't righteous anger. And now you may say, what about God's wrath and sending people to hell? Well, God's wrath and his anger is not directed at people. It is directed at sin. Take a look at this passage. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay. You may have heard from some preacher or whatever that, that we were all up there hanging with Jesus on the cross and it's not true. Jesus 
died for us, but you're not on the cross. What's on the cross according to this? But God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. What's on the cross for us? Sin. God is so ticked off at sin. He nails it to the cross and he kills it. And now we've got a choice. Here's the choice. You can choose to throw your lot in with sin and eventually share its consequences, which is death. Or you can throw your lot in with Jesus who rose from the dead. And the consequences of that relationship is everlasting life. But God did not put you on the cross. He does not hate you. He just simply says you get to choose. Who are you going to be with? Sin, you die. Jesus, you live. God isn't angry at people. He's angry at sin. He wants every single person to accept him and live. Sometimes when we're angry, do we wish the best for the people around us? No. We want them hurt. We want them to feel the same fear or the same pain we feel. Sometimes we use words. Sometimes we use attitudes. Sometimes we use facial expressions, tone of voice, or sometimes physical response because we want them to hurt. And man, we know how to do it. Final question. If your out-of-control anger has done damage, what have you done to fix it? There it is. Okay. What have you done to fix it? That's why Jesus says this. Therefore, if you were offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Now, let's get something straight. He doesn't mean that if there's somebody out there that doesn't like you, that you have to go fix that relationship before you can worship. I would never be able to worship. There are people who just don't like me. But in the context of what he's talking about, I said, now what about you though? Have you done or said something that has damaged a relationship? Have you lost control of your anger in such a way that, that something is broken out there? I'll tell you what, before you come and sing songs to me, why didn't you go fix that? Why don't you go fix that? This is the way Scripture puts it. Next slide, please. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See it to the, no one misses the grace of God and the no bitter root grows up to cause trouble. And def- in other words, right there he starts there and says, make every effort to live in peace with all men. It's your responsibility, my responsibility, to do what I can. In another passage, Paul writes this. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with... Okay. There is no way to have a perfect, whole, healthy relationship with everybody in the world. Some people just aren't going to like you. Go figure. It's not your responsibility to do anything about that. But if you cause damage... Did your words set in out-of-control anger 
break a relationship, crush a spirit. You may have to take care of that. If indeed what you said or you did in your out-of-control anger crushed, hurt, murdered, before you go any farther with God, maybe we should take care of that one. Maybe it's time to go and settle it. See, this is the time we're supposed to settle. That's why Jesus ends this whole thing this way. Settle matters quickly with your adversary. You know why? Because here's the only time you get it. Imagine yourself, the person that you've alienated, the person that you've hurt because of your out-of-control anger. You're both on the way to judgment. You are. (laughs) You don't have to imagine. You are. Okay? This is the time to settle it. I don't want to have to stand up in front of my father and have someone say, this is what he said to me, this is what he did to me, and he never apologized. That doesn't mean I'm going to go to hell. I'm saved through Jesus Christ, and I know that, but I, this is my shot. This is my chance to make it right with people today. See, I told you earlier that words matter. They do. Words hurt. They are weapons. But they also heal. That's the great thing about words. They also heal. So let's take a look at this. Learn to use the six most powerful. Here are the six. What do you think the six most powerful words are? Six most powerful words right now, particularly in restoration of relationship. You know, the thing is, I'm sorry. The problem with I'm sorry is if, if a murderer or a thief broke into my home and was attacking my family and I actually had to kill that person, I would be very sorry but I would also do it again. Right? Sorrow doesn't necessarily mean repentance. It just means I didn't like doing it. Here they are. Ready? I was wrong. Please forgive me. I was wrong. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Please. What I did, what I said was wrong. Please forgive me. Hard stuff. Hard with your spouse. Hard with your kids. Scripture says this. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. What Jesus is talking to us about in this act of righteousness, the righteous act of anger management is, look, it's okay to be angry. It is. Don't lose control. Don't say things that hurt. Don't imagine pain. Set it aside. And if you have caused damage, take care of it. That's righteous living. It isn't just that you didn't murder. It's that you don't hurt out of anger. And if you do, fix it. That's what life's about. Father, There are some sermons that we might preach that that just 
you know, apply, but Father, then there are some that just grab us because it's just so inbred in who we are. Father, thank you for your forgiveness and grace. And in the next few moments, through the Selah time, if indeed there is something that, that one of us needs to take care of, someone, something needs to be said to somebody else, those, those six words, then, Father, I pray that the relationships could just be healed as much as possible. It doesn't mean the relationship will be fixed, Father, because it takes two. We know that. But on our end and for our part, it may be that there are a few people that we're going to have to go see and just say, you know, when I lost my temper and I said this, I'm just, I was wrong to do that. Please forgive me. Father, that's going to take some courage, but some wisdom. But you'll give us both in the name of Jesus. Thank you so much. Amen. We're going to move into Selah, and then during that time, I'm going to change. We have a great privilege of baptism here in just a moment, but in the next few moments...